Welcome to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese, a program that can help you become liberated in the modern world. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin W. Reese. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to live with the most popular, notorious, and controversial spiritual master of the modern era? Welcome to episode number 72. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Vina Schlegel. She met Osho randomly in India in 1971 and stayed with him until his death in 1990. And wow, there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot to unpack in this episode. She was there before the Bhagwan became super popular. She was there for the meditation camps. And then the first commune, which is called Puna One. And then, of course, the notorious ranch in Oregon, USA. And then back to India for Pune 2. There's so much to talk about. Of course, a lot of it is in her book, which is called Glimpses of My Master. But, of course, my curious mind wants to go behind some stories and find out stuff. Hi, Vina. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. So I would like for you to take me back to 1971. You're in India. So there was this very beautiful woman dressed in orange and she had a mala. You know, a mala are these wooden beads that Indian spiritual people wear. And um, she came up to me and she said, oh, she said, I've met this marvelous guru in Bombay, or Mumbai as it is now. And she said, I want you to come and see him. And I said, oh, God, no, I'm not interested in gurus because I'd <laughs> seen many hippies with so many gurus for so long now in India. Um, and so she said, I'll pay your fare back to your airfare back if you'll come back with me. And I was like, no, what are you talking about? No way. But the boyfriend took the address because he was a bit more interested and so when we finally end up in Bom- ended up in um, Bombay, we did all the buying of the tickets and everything. Then he said, let's go and see this man. So that's how I ended up in uh, Woodlands, which was the name of, the name of his high-rise apartment in Bombay. What was your first impression of him? When I walked in, I didn't actually have any impression. So there were three of us. There was my boyfriend, then there was another guy I didn't know, and myself. And of course, the two guys walked in in front of me. And um, so I was the last one. But actually, I was a sort of a bit of a glamorous hippie. And I had all these rings on all my fingers and on my toes and ankle bracelets and all that. And Osho's first words were, ah, the lady with the rings has come. And uh, <laughs> I don't know if that other woman told him. I, I don't know how he knew that. But anyway, and um, then he started to, talking to this. I mean, he wasn't a real boyfriend. He was just somebody I'd known and traveled with mm-hmm. who had a heroin addict and was now trying to live on, on fruit. And Osho 
went right to his center in about two minutes flat. And that's when I had my first estimation. This has got to be the greatest psychologist I've come across. Because <laughs> <laughs> I had a degree in psychology and English. And uh, so I was quite tuned into that. And then he spoke to the second guy. And my second impression uh, was he spoke more about spiritual things to the second guy. And my, sec my second impression was, this is the greatest philosopher that I have ever met. Mm. And so you were supposed to leave India. You had the ticket and everything. Yes. And in your book, Glimpses of My Master, you talk about how you end up not leaving. You end up staying. Why did you stay? I had to. Just there was a whole inner voice saying, you're not, you know, as I described in my book, my, the whole of that week was you're going, you're going back to England. Oh, no, you're not. You're going back to England. No, 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 you're staying in India. And, um, yeah, I guess what can you say? Um, as Osho has said it and put it so beautifully, he said, when you see, when you meet the truth, you know it. Mm. And it was that that simple and that strong, you know, um, I just knew I had to stay. Of course, my mind was a bit uh, <laughs> very <laughs> nervous about it, but uh, the heart was definitely you staying, you know. So, okay. Yeah. So it's 1971. What, how big was his following at that point? Well, we can fast forward a little bit to, uh, what did I say, 1972, which was a camp, oh, sorry, a meditation retreat, if you like. The Indians call it a camp. And um, he wanted me to come to that, which was in a place called Mataran, which is on the Ghats between Bombay and Pune. And um, so we ended up there. And um, at that point, there were, uh, there, I counted, there were 13 Western people mm. and um, probably about 200 Indian uh, people. So not many. And of those 13 people, I'm the only one remaining <laughs> because a few of them have died and the others left. <laughs> right, right. What was your thoughts when you first did Osho's notorious dynamic meditation? What was that first experience like? Uh, okay, let me qualify that the greatest gift to mankind is dynamic meditation. I it has transformed as many people as Buddha's Vipassana technique. Um, Okay, well, actually, to be honest, I did do it in Goa. That lady, um, after we'd met them, she actually arranged the meditation amongst a whole group of hippies on the beach in Goa. And I loved it. And I remember after doing it, sort of walking around and going, oh, I'm high. Look, I'm high. And I haven't done any drugs. <laughs> <laughs> but that was a different experience to the first, the next meditation that experience that I had at that meditation retreat in Mataran, where 
Um, in the second stage, the breathing was okay. I mean, the breathing is amazing. But the second stage, when everybody went crazy and allowed, and all these Indians were screaming and shouting, I just, I had a blindfold on and I pulled off my blindfold and all these people were going crazy. And I thought, my God, Vina, you have made one big mistake. Get out of here fast. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Osha was very good at dealing with me with about that. And um, when I saw him, he, he, I, he's, he told me the next day, he said, stay away from the people, find a nice tree. <laughs> so I did. And then um, I ended up teaching dynamic um, for the first time in England, first time um, on Western soil, actually, there were a few people in America, but it um, it was going it went quite strong in England, and um, so I taught dynamic for quite a while, and I still think it is the greatest transforming technique for modern man. Yeah, people love it, and isn't it interesting how your first impression of it was like, what the heck is going on? imagine what someone thinks of it that has no knowledge of eastern traditions at all spirituality at all they think you're just going crazy yes well or, or even western psychology you know they don't understand that there's all the stuff bottled up inside of people which needs to be let out you know actually all osha said once it was like a spring cleaning all i can say it's the most transforming technique for 21st century man that they can be but it is not popular because of that second stage it's difficult to hold meetings with that because with all those people screaming the neighbors get freaked out and call the police and that happened to me quite a few times um you know and wondering what on earth is going on and people dying or murdering each other so yeah, it has its drawbacks in that um, neighbors don't understand. After your first time doing dynamic meditation, my understanding is that you went back to your room, you went to sleep, and you had a dream or a vision where Osho came to say hello. <laughs> yes, he told me to come back. Um, after doing that, that was actually the second one in, in the Mataran or the first one at the Mataran retreat. Yes, he uh, had told me to come back to see him, um, to see how I had managed. Um, I think it was at two o'clock and um, I overslept. I, was, I, I suddenly was drained of all energy and I suddenly had this vision of him at the bottom of my bed saying, wake up, wake up, you're supposed to come and see me. And I did wake up and it was like, oh my God. And then I ran up and I think that was also a transforming moment. I woke up and I ran up to his house. It wasn't too far. It was maybe five minutes or something. And I was, <laughs> I said, I'm sorry, I'm late. And he said, um, yes, I know. I called you. And I just sat down and I looked at him and I just kind of like, he disappeared and I disappeared. And I just went into something, some space, some beautiful transparent space that I had never met before. Mm. 
And um, I have no idea to this day how long I sat there for. It could have been two minutes. It could have been an hour. And then um, when finally I sort of came back to earth, he just looked at me and he said, okay, so you will stay with me? And I said, yes. Is that the confirmation that you're dealing with something (laughs) different? Yes, probably it was my first little satori, if you like. Mm. And um, I had had a little bit of experience of it before when I was on the train going from Bombay to Delhi. You read about that in my book where I had this kind of like floating experience. But was, yes, my first taste of something bigger, something vast, something unknown, something you couldn't put into words. And um, I suppose I was hooked. (laughs) Yeah. You know, you said there was only, I think, 12 or 13 Westerners there at the time. Yes. So many of us Westerners have all this baggage from our lifestyle socially. We're socially engineered very much so. Mm. And, you know, do do you think that Osho created dynamic meditation and other techniques for the Westerners? With all this conditioning and baggage that we carry, 100% yes. Um, In those early days when we were still in uh, Mumbai, um, me and he used to call a few people in. Sometimes we would be two or three people, sometimes just one person. And he was questioning, 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 questioning. Um, try this technique. How do you feel? What does it do? You know, it was it was really like we were guinea pigs. He was trying to figure out how we were, how we responded, what our hang-ups were and everything, and therefore give him the information that he needed to try and um, uh, work out how he could help. He was a scientist in that way. He was 100% scientist, yeah. And so wasn't Gautama the Buddha from what we read in reports of ancient times. And so it sounds like Osho was perfecting his craft on how to reach more people and try to wake up more people. And and you were there to witness it. (laughs) Yes, yes. And be part of it and hopefully help. Yeah. No, no, that is absolutely the case. You know, he was very clear, you know, we have to change. We can't use old methods, you know, because this is 20th, first century. It's a jet age, he used to say. We have to use jet um, methods. And it is absolutely true because um, there are too many people still doing the traditional techniques which were designed for people 2,000 years ago who were living in a completely different world to how we are living now. What did you make of him, you know, not blinking much and also doing these long discourses, these sat sayings, where his leg is crossed the whole time. (laughs) It almost just seems out of this world. 
I think if you are a, a medical person and you watch him, I've had people comment and say it is physically impossible for a person to sit with one crossed leg for two, two and a half hours. I feel I have a little bit of an understanding about that because when you are, oh gosh, it, it gets very esoteric now, when you are out of the body, if you like. So the, the physical body is there, but you actually are not part of it. You've expanded way beyond it. Um, the body becomes, A, a little bit irrelevant. So it doesn't function as it would normally be if you were sitting there like you are talking to me or I'm talking to you. For example, one, one example he used to try to illustrate that was Nijinsky dancing because it was very often said that when Nijinsky jumped into the air when he was dancing it is physically impossible for a person to jump that high and for such a length of time and be sus remain suspended for so long and um, Osho spoke about that and he said that was because he was in another space he was actually out of the body and therefore the body wasn't obeying the normal gravity rules or the normal physiological rules that um, it normally would do. One day he told you that he had a new meditation for you, right? And he asked you to sit in the garden outside of his room. Is that correct? <laughs> yes. While he slept. Yes. <laughs> so this this was the story in your book that fascinated me the most because where what did you feel was there a trans transmission of energy while he was sleeping it terrified me first of all because mainly because he had said um he said, oh, your chattering minds disturb me. He said, your minds are forever chattering, you know, and they disturb my peace. He had said that a few times. So then he told me to go and sit. And I mean, so there was only this brick wall between me and him. And so I thought, oh, my mind's going to be chattering and chattering and disturbing his, pe his peace and everything. So I was very nervous. It was, I was certainly didn't felt any, feel anything initially other than being very nervous. Um, but it was like, uh, you've heard this, this um, expression, and I can't pronounce it properly, the sword of Demosthenes. Have you okay. heard that expression? I haven't, have no. Um, where you've got a sword hanging over you, and because of that, you are supremely aware because that sword could fall at any point and um, pierce you and kill you. So because of that, I basically felt it was a training in being supremely aware and to be so aware of my chattering mind that actually I was able to calm it down. So I think... Um, uh, I wouldn't say I had any particular feeling or emotion or anything. It was just trying to be in a state of awareness of myself 
and of him and of my mind and to slow that mind down so that stupid chattering didn't disturb him. It was a very, very strong um, learning or teaching technique that he was, he was teaching me, which was he took a risk because I could have disturbed him. <laughs> but he seemed to be okay with it. Um, I sat there until I left the first time I left India. And he, he was very into his naps. I mean, he loved his naps, right? Uh, naps was the most important thing. You, nothing ever disturbed his naps, ever. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you think that is? My own understanding is, is that when you meditate and you are deeply meditating, you use up a lot of energy. And um, he actually said that. And, and I remember his, the woman who looked after him, Nirvana, saying that when he was just giving a discourse or giving darshan, he could lose like three or four pounds in weight just in that hour or so because he was putting out so much energy. And I have felt it myself when I've been through some kind of energetic experience like that. I am exhausted and I sleep. So I think he was regulating his energy. So he would be putting it out in the morning, in the morning discourse or something. Then he would eat and then he would sleep to regenerate his energy ready for the evening darshan. So I think it was, it was a, a real... Regeneration. Actually, even somebody mentioned that about um, Gurdjieff. Mm. If you've read anything about Gurdjieff, how once they said he looked so exhausted and then he had to go and he stayed away for three days or some uh, three hours and he came back full of energy again. But I, if, you, if you don't mind, I'll tell you one experience that I had. Um, there was a man that I was quite close to and he was going a little bit crazy. And I remember I had this feeling to go out of the Latsu house where I lived, which was Osho's house. And there was a wall there. That wall was very famous to sit on the wall. And he was sitting there and I went and sat with him. And I, I, I could feel his energy was quite sort of phrenic or something. And I just held his hand, you know, and we sat there for about an hour and a half. And I just felt all of Osho's energy going through me to him. It was like, you know, he, you know, he did use mediums. You, you've heard about this whole medium thing in the darshans. Yes. And it was as if I was simply being a channel for him to go through my, me to this man, who was a very beautiful man, actually. And when I finally left him and I went back, I think I slept for 15 hours nonstop. Wow. Just exhausting. So I think that answers your question of why he had to have a nap, because it was a vital regeneration time for him because of all the energy he was constantly putting out. Yeah. I mean, the, the man talked almost every day. Yes. For 20 years straight? Yes. I, I, 
how how does <laughs> that's no, that's hard to wrap the mind around and twice a day uh yeah although the darshans well in puna one that was before we went to the ranch he would give discourses in the morning and darshans in the evening so he was still talking in darshan and he was still putting out a massive amount of energy um so yes in Pune too, he we only we didn't have um, darshan anymore. Darshan means meeting him more personally, talking to him. You had a chance to speak to him, and those people who wanted to take sannyas, you know, took sannyas personally, physically from him in front of him. Um, and then, but as you well know, um, he that time in the jail in America took a massive toll on his body. And he said that he felt that he had been irradiated with some kind of irradiation. And strangely enough, we're hearing about this right now um, with Russia, put irradiating people to, to kill them. This latest one, <clears throat> he's in Germany now, but he's recovered, you know, but um, Osha's body was much weaker um, yeah. than the two. Mm. Yeah, and then thallium poison as well. Yeah, whatever it was, we will never know. So in 1974, that's when Puna 1 started, right? The ashram? Yes. yes. So now the audience is getting bigger. Probably still not in... 1974, it was 1975 that the, <laughs> the, the, the crowd started coming. Yeah. There was this deluge that started, yes. More 1975, and it reached quite a peak in 1976. And so I, I have listened to countless hours of discourses, right. and... A lot of them are from 76, 77, 78, right in there. Right. And, you know, the format of these quote-unquote audiobooks, they're not really audiobooks, they're discourses, but they're on Audible mm -hmm. as audiobooks, which is clever, yes. I might yes. add. The format is the discourse would be one audio track and then the next audio track would be a Q&A session. Yes. So as I'm listening to these, now I've been a public speaker for almost 25 years. Mm -hmm. So I know what it takes. I know how much energy it takes to talk to crowds of people. Yes. And he's doing it every day and it's mind-blowing to me the value the organization so what I'm wondering and what I want to ask you is how much effort did you see Osho put into these talks? I mean, certainly he couldn't prepare for all of them, but I mean, there are pictures of him, you know, in his bedroom, you know, writing things down or he has a book open or, or whatnot. I know he didn't plan them out word for word. Definitely not but an outline of some sort, something. Not in Puna 1. No? 
Puna 2, yes. In Puna 2, you can see if you can, if you're looking at a, a video, you can see him turning over the pages. He has got a few notes in Puna 2. In Puna 1, no. He just tuned into something else and off he went. But, you know, it, it's, it's, this is another indication which um, you're actually picking up is that this impossibility of somebody to speak with such coherence and such organization without notes every morning, you know. So, but actually, no, he didn't. The only notes he had were the jokes. <laughs> the jokes. I was just going to say that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's the early notes because he did read the jokes because it was, he wasn't quite in, you know, he wasn't wasn't quite his um, cultural heritage those jokes, but in Puna one, you know, the only thing he did every now and then, um, because I was editing the books first and then sewing on the library veranda. You know, he had this huge library. Yeah. Um, supposedly at one point by the Guinness Book of Records said to be the largest private library in the world. And um, in the afternoon before, because his work time was was after the nap, sort of from um, about three to five, and he would send out and ask the librarian maybe to pick out a certain book now, he had this whole library and he knew exactly what book he wanted, you know, and they had to find that book and take it in to him. And then he would use possibly, um, he would paraphrase, it wouldn't be a complete quote, but he would use something from that book in the discourse the next morning. So that's about the only kind of preparation he did. You know, he just tuned into something else. And I mean, when he was talking, like for me, the early days, because I'm very Zen, Zen is my thing. When he was talking on Lao Tzu, on Chuan Tzu, on Li Tzu, you know, it was as if he was tuning into those people and simply talking about their essence. That's all. And I mean, the same thing when he talked about Buddha, you know, I mean, Mind-blowing, <laughs> you know, you, you just, you know, it really is, you can't even believe, you know, how, what he was doing. But if you think he was, if you like channeling, maybe we can bring it down to something that's a little bit small, but channeling the knowledge, the understanding of the great speakers. And, you know, Kevin, I'm so glad you spoke, you've spoken about this because, so often in the press, particularly in the media, have called him a new age guru spouting a hodgepodge of bits and pieces of other philosophies. Um, and he, he is known for that and he is derided for that. And he doesn't have, um, what's the word? He, he, he doesn't have credit for what he was actually doing because people simply don't understand but you have listened and you have seen that there is a vast 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 energy behind what he's speaking he's not just spouting new at new age platitudes at all to understand osho 
is to me to first understand what a spiritual master is. Yes. And then you, and then you can understand Osho. That's that's the only way. And same with Gurdjieff. Yeah, yeah. Same with Bodhidharma. Same with all of them. Yes. Yeah. They're all saying the same thing over and over again so in order for Osho to come out there every day he had to become a commentator no different than a sports commentator so an ex-athlete plays for 15 years retires and then becomes the color commentator for the for the games and and they can speak on it because they've been there done that so experienced it Osho can talk about the Diamond Sutra and he can talk about this Zen master and he can talk about the Sermon on the Mount and whatnot because he can go into their shoes and he can yes. tell you the essence of it. So he's a, he's a commentator in that way, right? Yes. Commentator and channel. <laughs> yeah. It's a new age term, but, but it, it, it is. He is, you know, he said... He said, "You have to be like a hollow bamboo." Yes. The the because the music only plays because the bamboo flute is hollow, you know. And so he was playing that music because he was hollow. Yeah. So, what did that Buddha field feel like? <laughs> he. I maybe start by saying he he said many times that whenever a Buddha is on this planet, a Buddha has a Buddha field around him, and he actually was quite specific. He said it reaches for a, a circle of eight kilometers, you know. So as soon as you were were within eight kilometers of the Buddha, you would feel the energy. And then, of course, as you got closer and closer, it was stronger and stronger. And I was actually trying to think today, how could I possibly put that into words? It was like, it was like entering a cloud of peace, of joy, of just floating outside a bit of your physical body and getting a taste of something greater, some energy of the universe or something where you're just your um, petty uh, human being, you know, involved in earning your living and eating your food and, and blah, blah, blah. It was something bigger than you. And what I living in his house, as I did, um, I would often walk down what we call the red corridor because I lived in one of the rooms of the serv original servants' quarters and walking down to his library, which was one of the bigger, much bigger rooms. I really felt transparent. It was as if I was a happy ghost um, walking down and... and yeah, it is very, very hard to put that into words, but there was just a magic in the air, you know, and it was, you walked into this cloud of of magic, um, I won't even say feeling, because feeling brings you back to the human body, this, this um, sense of magic in the air, 
and something vaster than you. Mm. I think that is that is the one of the basic things I have always felt about him is his vastness. And when he talks about taking you out of your little human um, mind and heart or emotions and things to take you into something greater and bigger, there was a sense of this fastness. i tell you one thing, which is, again, another turning point. With him, there was like lots and lots and lots of little learning things. I was lying in my bed one day, and I suddenly had this feeling of me here in the body, on the bed. I could feel the bed underneath me, and I could see him a thousand miles away, a billion miles away. And I was really freaked out because I thought I was, I was quite close to him. So in those, it was quite early on. In those days, you could actually book a darshan quite easily. You could go that evening. So I went to him and I, and I said, hmm, you know, I said, I thought I was close to you or something. But I, now I feel that you, you're just so far away from me, I can't even um, imagine. And he looked at me and he said, hmm, very good lesson. Now you start to understand how far away I am and how far you have to go. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Osho, yes. <laughs> now, this is a good segue because for those that don't know, you know Osho became self-realized or enlightened when he was only 21 years old. Mm-hmm. I've heard him say, Vina, man, I don't know where I read it, but I, I read it that he actually had a theory, which is rare because usually he's only spoke what he knew, right? But he had a theory that because he became enlightened so young that his body couldn't support the energy, his physical body couldn't support the energy. And he thought that may be the reason why he became so chronically ill and his body was breaking down at a younger age. And he, in the reading where I read it, he actually recommended people to, you know, wait till they're 30 or 30 mm-hmm. or plus, 30 plus, when mm-hmm. your body is more able to handle it. I thought that was just fascinating. Well, he had no, uh, he said that actually quite a few times. Um, and he said that when you open up to, for want of a better word, the energy of existence, it is such a shock. So it is so big that your body has to be very, very strong to, um, to handle it. And yes, definitely his body was weaker than other enlightened masters for example there's one enlightened master i never met him but i really do feel he is enlightened in in china he's 96 now he looks like he's about 60 you Mm. know but he uh i think got enlightened much later more in his 50s or 60s or something so he's managed to hang on and um but yes i think osho and it's so good you bring that one up too because 
um, I said somewhere in another talk I gave some a few months ago, is nobody realized how fragile his body was. And that when, you know, some people, I remember um, in Pune, oh, watch over Pune one or two it was, it was, why can't those people living in Lao house come and wash the pots and pans here too, like us? Why can't I go and live in Lao house, you know? But we were so aware of how fragile his body was and how we had to do the maximum to, to ensure that he wasn't disturbed in order for him to carry on with what he was doing. His body was very fragile. And that's why very few people actually met him physically. Yeah, it's a totally true his body was fragile. Yeah, he had asthma. He seemed to have some sort of fatigue, maybe. And diabetes. Diabetes. What type one? Well, like type, when um, a pre pre diabetes. It was controlled just by food. Which is interesting because he's a, he was a skinny guy. Yes. <laughs> Usually, type two diabetes is from somebody who's hefty. Yes. Yes. But, uh, but actually, Indians have a high rate of diabetes in India. It's mm. very, they, it seemed to be um, in their DNA that they, they are, are more susceptible to diabetes. I mean, a lot of Indians suffer from diabetes, and they were pretty thin too. Mm. So no, you're absolutely right. His body was fragile and needed a lot of care. I love your book. There's another book that I also love from a sannyasin, uh, Davagit. Do you remember Davagit? Yes, of course. Yes, yes. His book details the pain that Osha went through in the dental room. Yes. It's mind-blowing. I mean, I had to fight back tears because I've never heard of such a thing of somebody who can go through so much pain mm -mm. and handle it mm. like some out of this world type of uh, pain threshold. Yes. Yeah. And Davagit tells a story in that book and I'm paraphrasing where he had to do some dental work on Osho and, you know, he had the drill going and you know, it kept getting caught in his mustache and everything. And, and, and he's like, well, we got to shave the mustache. He's like, no, you can't shave the mustache. You just do what you have to do. And one point, Osho tries to talk. And yes. Dav Davigit pulls the drill out. He's like, what are you doing? You're going to cut yourself. Like you can lose your tongue. <laughs> and Osho says, don't you, don't you tell me I can't talk. Yes. <laughs> Don't you tell me I can't talk. And he kept doing it. And it, of course, it messed with Davigit's mind. Davigit was getting angry because mm -hmm. he, does, he doesn't want to hurt his mm -hmm. master, right? And Osho was actually willing to hurt himself to teach him a lesson. Absolutely. And also, one other point that's also a very good point, and you can also get a parallel with Gurdjieff too, which Osho talked about. If you remember, Gurdjieff had a very bad car accident. Yes. 
was driving very fast and had a very bad car accident and um, he nearly killed himself and um, it took a long time for him to recover. And Osho's explanation at that point was quite interesting. And this, I think, relates to this whole dental experience. He said that Gurdjieff had to force himself to stay in the body to do his work. And the only way he could stop himself from floating off into existence, which is where the enlightened person really should be, because the enlightened person, according to Osho, hasn't got a connection with the earth anymore. You know, So in order to keep him there in the to, in order to keep himself in the body Gurdjieff deliberately had a car accident and hurt himself because it was the pain that was keeping him here in the body wow. without that pain he could have floated off and I you know of course I read David Gates book in fact I did the first editing on it um, and and I was like, I, you know, I was so shocked. I said, my God, David Bikin, how on earth could you go through that? You know, this is just terrifying. It's mind boggling. But I also got the sense that not only was he doing, uh, teaching David Gates a lesson, what we, he was teaching, we don't know. But, but also it was possibly he was getting very close to leaving at that time. So it was possibly, now I'm not saying this is true or not, this is only my own idea, possibly an attempt still to keep himself in the body for as long as he possibly could by deliberately bringing himself into the body to experience that pain. Yes, and I have heard many times that many spiritual masters need something earthly to ground themselves so that they don't yes. float off now yes. and if you notice many gurus are sometimes a little chubby mm. so they you know they get involved with the food and that mm. might that might be their earthly thing did you read that story of of when osha explained that of one indian enlightened man who was eating everything he could see did you read that do you remember yes yes it yes. was it was um I can't remember. It was Krishna it, something. Ramakrishna, I think. Ramakrishna. It was Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna. Yep. And then his disciples said, this is terrible. You're eating so much. And he said, the day I stop eating will be the day I die. And that's exactly what happened. Baba Neem Karoli was like that as well. He was known mm -hmm. for his blanket. He had the blanket and he, was, he, he ate a lot of food. And uh, Ramana Maharshi liked to cook. He'd go in and he'd cook and... <laughs> What what was it for Osho to stay in the body? Now, we know that he taught tantric sex and became known as the, the sex guru, which is funny because if somebody's teaching that now, nobody cares. But yes. in the 60s and 70s, it's like... <gasps> Shock horror. And it was just so untrue just so totally and utterly untrue because I, I remember when you know on the ranch I was dealing with all these stupid journalists and that's all they thought about and I said listen you know we think about sex about two percent of the time and something else the 98 percent of the time and you think about sex a hundred percent of the time you know we're not going to meet ever you know because there's too much of a disparity 
Um, but I will say, and I have said it quite a number of times, that his um, carer, Nirvana, I am convinced was his grounding to the earth. Vivek? Vivek, yeah. Later. She had a few names, right? Later, Nirvana, yes. She was a very, very good friend of mine, very close friend from the beginning to the end. Um, there are pictures of Osho holding her hand mm. all the time, holding her hand. She's always next to him. Mm. Was she his caretaker slash girlfriend? You know, you can't even talk about their relationship in those kind of terms, um, in terms of girlfriend or boyfriend or lover or whatever. Um, it was for me observing them from day one. Um, it was just something so much greater. Um, yes, he loved her. He loved her dearly. And <laughs> she never stopped talking about how marvelous he was and everything, which I could totally understand. I wanted to hear every story she had to tell. Um, I think it was just something that is very hard for us to fathom. If, you know, the whole Indian philosophy is tantra and tantric sex and everything. But if you go back further to Taoism, you've got the whole yin-yang energy thing. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that is sort of has basically no sexual connotations at all. For me, it's a far finer way of describing the balance of everything in the universe, which is always positive, negative, um, passive, aggressive, male, female, if you like. It's the balance which keeps the whole existence in balance, you mm -hmm. know. And it's far greater than sex or girlfriends or boyfriends or wives or anything like that. And um, for me, she fulfilled that role of keeping that balance for him, um, enabling him to stay on the, on the earth for as long as possible. And, you know, it took it out of her too, you know, but... Um, yeah was quite a, a strong role. For example, one thing is you, you must have heard of the energy darshans in Pune, Pune 1. Mm -hmm. Heard of the energy darshans, which are totally chaotic, which if you look at them, you'll think this is a sort of madhouse or bedlam or something. Um, but what he said was, even then, he had mediums helping him. And he said very explicitly in a, in a discourse somewhere, he said, because I have a male energy, I can't work directly on men. I can work directly on women because then we can keep that balance, that yin-yang balance. You know? right. But I can't work directly on men because it's yang-yang. <laughs> so he said, I have to have um, some women to help me. And when I go, when I put the energy into the woman and you can see him, you know, touching a woman's third eye or something or the head or something, he said that way I can, the energy can go through me, but trans be transformed into a female energy, which can then work on my male sannyasins. Right. 
I guess it's quite a hard concept to understand, you know. But I, basically, I'm just trying to say never, ever, ever reduce his work, his vastness to the basic level of lust and sex. Definitely, definitely not. In fact, I remember reading arguably his most famous book, From Sex to Superconsciousness. And I remember reading it and being like, there's no sex in here. (laughs) Of course not. (laughs) Like, I mean, he talks about sex as a doorway. Yeah. As a doorway to the divine, but he doesn't give like tips and tricks. No, well, it's a basic energy. You you can't live without that basic, if you like, kundalini energy. You know, it's your life energy. Call it a life energy. You know, yeah. but if he said life energy to to super consciousness, nobody would understand. And he was a good showman. He was a very very good showman. So that was a very catchy title. Sex to super consciousness got everybody interested in reading. <laughs> He was a shock jock. He wanted to shock people into oh, awakening. Totally. His method was shocking. Shock people into awakening. Mm-hmm. My perspective is different from yours. You were there. And I'm um and taking it so many years later. And my perspective is that he knew he was creating something that someone like me was going to ingest 30, 40 years later. So he's laying down the work. He's laying down what's going to be there. Because unlike Jesus, unlike Buddha, unlike Lao Tzu, he's got the technology. He, He can be recorded. Exactly, exactly. And he said that very clearly. He just said, I want every single word recorded so there can be no misunderstanding and it will go down from generation to generation and it's not just the next 30 or 40 years it's the next 300 or or 400 years yes and um he was he was just laying the groundwork and um we were part of this sort of great experiment (laughs) Um, which and you know sometimes he, he didn't get it quite right he was experimenting nobody had ever done anything like this before Buddha's Buddha's followers were like Buddha himself they were just very simple people and we came with as you said at the beginning with such baggage and Christianity baggage um materialism, just so much baggage that he had to try and cut through. And then people got hold of the wrong end of the stick and criticized him for it, you know, not understanding how much he had to deal with and his courage. Oh the, my gosh. Yeah. The, cur- the courage is ridiculous. Yeah. On, on taking on, <clears throat> especially Western people who had no concept of the master disciple relationship. Right. Indians do, Chinese do, Japanese do. Western people don't have that concept, you know. Nope, nope. If you touch touch the feet of someone, it looks like you're in a cult of some sort. To yes, them. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. If you put your hands in namaste position, you know. Yeah. 
You mentioned Gurdjieff earlier. Gurdjieff, based on my reading, similar to Osho. And you can tell Osho read a lot of Gurdjieff. Yes, he did. He liked Gurdjieff. Now, Gurdjieff was a trickster. (laughs) I wouldn't say Osho was as much of a trickster, but certainly was a trickster. And, And people... A lot of people don't understand that masters usually are because they have to create devices. Yes, exactly. For the person to wake up or learn a lesson. Mm -hmm. One of those devices and lessons was the Rolls Royces. (laughs) And I, and people get caught up in that, right? Yes. But this is like his way of getting rid of the people that are caught up in it. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Like if you're caught up in the Rolls Royces and you think I'm just trying to get rich and all this and blah, 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 then you're not for me. Go away. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that was the most genius device that any enlightened man has ever created. Ever. (laughs) Audacity of it. My God. (laughs) Ever. And, you know, I once, I once saw him in a video say, and it's rare. You don't see too many Rolls Royce comments but they're there they're they're very hard to find but they're there a journalist asked about them and he said don't you worry about the rolls royces let the rolls royces do their work <laughs> yes yes i also think almost he was almost poking fun at the pope a little bit too of course he was not a little bit a lot <laughs> a lot because the pope is notorious obviously for having riches right Yes, yes. And here's Osho, the Bhagwan, from a poor village with this massive audience, like the Pope, this this get-up clothing, which you had a part in, (laughs) and almost 100 Rolls Royces. Yes, 99. I think he never quite made 100. (laughs) Just sitting there doing nothing. It's like a baseball card collection or something. Yes, and 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 when when we had the festivals, um, when he decided he'd decide what Rolls Royce to have, or we would we would decide on the outfit, because we presented him with say um, usually the festival lasted six or seven days, right? So we would present him with about ten outfits, and he could choose the ones he liked and which ones he wanted on which day. So when we got the, the, the robe for day three, for example, so maybe this one was blue and, and turquoise or something. So then we would go down to the Rolls-Royce garage and the guy who was looking after the Rolls-Royce, who's a French guy, and say, okay, he wants to be color-coordinated. So find a Rolls-Royce to color-coordinate with this outfit. And we'd give him samples of the fabric that we used. So he color-coordinated his Rolls-Royces with the robe he was wearing that day. <laughs> and he would, take, he would take his little rides, just like his nap. That was his little... Yes, yeah. And he liked to drive. I mean, coming from the village and the place he came from, there was no... No Rolls Royces. <laughs> but, you know, with that drive too, also, I had an idea. For me, because he was riding around, I felt, you know, that we were actually, because of Sheila's shenanigans, 
we were sometimes actually in quite a lot of danger. And I felt he was like a magician or a fairy godmother with a wand, um, weaving a protective spell around Rajneesh Puram as he drove, you know, um, and so that his energy could go that much further and, um, yeah, be a protective shield, if you like. That's what I felt. Let's, let's talk about the clothes real quick. Based on video I've seen, he pretty much wore just like a white robe in the 70s. In Puna One, yes. But then it started changing, and you had a part in that. You, he found out that you could make clothes, right? Yes. <laughs> so he put you to work to create, and you guys together sort of created this new outfit. Yes. Which he's known for now. Yes. Now, this is part of the showmanship. He wanted to stand out, I would think. Yes. And because the hats, I mean, you don't see hats like that, just hanging around, <laughs> it, you know. That's, well, you've read my book, so you know my story with this, the current hat and how I'd actually put it in the garbage. And, and Nirvana fished it out with two fingers and said, what about? This and I said, no, 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 mistake, mistake, mistake. She said, no, let me go and try. She went um, and tried it on, and he liked it, just he wanted it a bit bigger because he wanted it lighter. Um, oh, you know, Kevin, so much I don't know of what he was doing. Why did he want those hats all the time? Was it just appearance or... You know, somebody said to me, oh, it was esoteric that he needed to have the hat on so that the top of his head wasn't exposed because it was so open because of it was the top chakra or something. I, I just don't know. But you also have to understand, too, his playfulness and his creativity and his, well, if we can do it this way, why not? If I've got this girl who can make me fancy clothes, why not use it, you know? And that, I mean, that was his genius when he had people around him. Whatever they could do, he took that skill that they had, turned it into something totally creative, and also turned it into a way that he could make them learn and, and all kinds of things like that too, yes. So um, mm. I think, yes, it was because... I had got a bit of a background in, in sewing and theater costumes and everything. So I could sort of come up with that. And so, so the infamous hat was in the garbage. <laughs> the, the last hat that he wore until he died yeah. that came out of my, the garbage. Yes, I had dumped it there because I was in despair. I couldn't think of a, something because the hat he'd had before was too hot. Yeah, Oregon in the summer is hot. Well, if I had to guess, my guess would be it was showmanship. He's trying to stand out and trying to bring people, again, shock people into awakening. And if you can stand out, look, it worked for Howard Stern. <laughs> <laughs> No, it was definitely part of it. He was a showman and he had to be, if he was going to, to reach as many people as he wanted, 
He had to stand out. Michael Jackson, Madonna, Howard Stern. You just look at the massive celebrities of the last 50 years. Go back further, Elvis Presley. Mm -hmm. These people stood out by doing things that were eccentric. Yes, not not what is what was expected. You know, most people, uh, he's been criticized for that. You know, he can't be a holy man. A holy man is sitting in a hut with no possessions or anything. And I said, no, 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 that's not my way, you know. But he wasn't attached to any of it. But he knew, you know, if he was going to reach people, he had to make a stand. And (laughs) the clothes were part of it. (laughs) And the choices. Yeah, because you look at, again, you look at other Indian gurus did not gain as big of a following as he did. Mm-mm. Nobody. I, yeah, in my estimation, that's that's the biggest following since Buddha himself. Definitely. Absolutely. Because Gurdjieff didn't make it, I think. No, he Gurdjieff, didn't. Gurdjieff, again, he didn't have such, for me... I mean, Osho said that once. He said, I'm lucky I've got better disciples than Gurdjieff had. <laughs> and Gurdjieff was, he was so, so much into the trickery. Yes. And he would turn people off. Yes. So people would run away from him and be like, that guy's crazy, you know? Yeah. And so his following didn't, I mean, his disciples got a bigger book than he does, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And um, who was um, Krishnamurti? Yeah. Similar thing. I mean, Krishnamurti is beautiful. You know, he's lovely, but he hasn't got that ability to connect with people and stand out and therefore get as big a following as Osho can. I mean, you know, one of the people we've got, Lady Gaga, who loves Osho, Mm -hmm. you know. And Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise, he said he drew on Osho's book for one of his, his silly films that he made, you know. And Van- then, Vanilla Sky. Yes, yes, exactly. And then um, even the, we, we about two years ago, there was a photo of, what is his name? Will Smith. His, mm-hmm. What's his son's name? Jaden Smith. Yes. And he was carrying an Osho book. You know, he was just... He doesn't say anything. He was just um, photographed. He had a, an Osho book in his arm. You know, so, so Osho could reach such a variety of people. And that's his genius. And that's the thing about it. People don't even have to know the story. They don't have to know about Oregon, the two Punas, nothing. No. All they need to do is listen to him and read the books. Yes, exactly. <laughs> You know, he, he loves Zen, and so you're a Zen gal. I like Zen as well, and so I feel like he almost created a life that was a Zen koan. It was. The whole, his whole life was a koan. Yes. Yes, and I mean, don't ever, ever, ever try to define him. <laughs> You know, even when you asked me, what did it feel like to to be in the Buddha field? How can I define it? It was, it's mystery. You know, as he said, his famous quote, life is a mystery to be lived, not to be solved. Mm -hmm. 
And you have to live with that mystery, with that not knowing. And that's a real challenge to us with our, our minds who like everything concrete and formulated and black and white, you know. You just have to learn to live with that unknown mystery. But if you really can do it, it's ex- extraordinary. I have a, an ashram I retreat to every now and again in New York. And just, I think, last year I was there. And this young lady comes out. And, and we get into a conversation. And, and she says, uh, who's your guru? Mm-hmm. I, I said, I smile. <laughs> I say, Osho. Yes. And she stops eating, looks at me, <sighs> eyes wide open. And she goes, really? And she like sits down. She's like, tell me more. <laughs> really? Oh, and, I was going to say, I think she said her, go away. Her first question is, what did you think of wild, wild country? Oh, God. <laughs> and I said, well, you know, it really wasn't about Osho. No, you know? it wasn't at all. And but they did made him look like they made him look like something that he's not. There's not enough context in that mm-hmm. documentary, mm-hmm. and so there's a lot of people, thousands upon thousands of people now, being introduced to Osho through this documentary on Netflix. Yeah, and I think Osho would have loved it, and I think. So many people are now knocking on the Osho door because some people will just accept it as this weird thing that happened and they'll have their opinion. Mm. But there's another demographic of people with curiosity that say, hold on here. I want to know more about this guy. Forget the Sheila lady. Forget the commune itself. Look at the people. Right. They're happy. Yes. I want to know more about this guy. Then they they find him on YouTube. They watch a video. And he's saying something that just penetrates their entire being. Mm -hmm. Next thing you know, they're reading the book. Next thing you know, boom, boom, boom. So even though this documentary doesn't depict him in the greatest light, because they just, I guess they didn't want to for whatever reason, it's bringing more people to him and he is becoming more popular now than ever before. Yes, yes, yes. And he actually said that. He said, you know, don't think it'll stop when I die. You know, it'll just um, balloon bigger and bigger. I know. In fact, sometimes I sort of go at the end of the day, I think, I've got to go and have a walk because there's so much going on with Osho now you know and um, it's just sort of mind-boggling how much he has penetrated people and their hearts to their beings to such an extent and then they come up with a different creativity you know and it's just extraordinary extraordinarily beautiful He's been dead for 30 years mm. and he is more popular now than he was 30 years ago. It, it's mind blowing to sort of let the mind, let the imagination go 30 years even further and think about how popular he's going to be 
in 2050? Mm-hmm. Because I think because the world is going through such a trauma right now and such chaos. And remember, that was one of his biggest things. I mean, one of his biggest um, teaching devices was creating chaos. Yeah, We used to laugh and say he's pulling the rug from underneath our feet. Because in that moment, you have to be mindless. You can't quite cope with this chaos. And I'm seeing it all around me all the time, every day in every kind of media, you know. But out of that chaos can come a better understanding for those who are more intelligent. Those, unfortunately, who are much weaker might go under, but there's a core group of people who are going to come out of this much, much, much stronger. And he's aiming at those people. Yes, and his main teaching, in my opinion, is Zorba the Buddha. Yes. The new man, creating the new man that is... Half Buddha, half Zorba, half, you know, half fun, love, celebratory lifestyle, along with silence and solitude and awareness, you know. Mm, absolutely. And that, that's attractive to people because when they think of spirituality, they automatically think meditating under a tree or, you know, yes. ren- renouncing, shaving their head and becoming a monk. And here's Osho saying, don't become a monk. Mm-hmm. You don't need to do that. No. <laughs> Look how happy the birds are, you know. They're not sort of sitting under a tree and starving themselves and everything. You know? yeah. <laughs> no, it's, I know. it's just this potential that's in all of us. And, you know, you can, mm-hmm. you can become self-realized and enlightened if you're a plumber. If you're, if you're a teacher, if you're, if you're a carpenter, it doesn't matter. You know, it's, you know, it, it's just about practice. And being aware when you're practicing. Yeah. I mean, I, I could talk for another hour easily with you on all this. I'm looking at my notes and I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't get there. I didn't get there. I didn't get there. <laughs> <laughs> you never will with Asha. You just no. <laughs> what is it about the Book of Secrets that kind of makes that his almost his master work out of all his books? Does, I mean, it's like twelve hundred pages. It's just it's massive. The Book of Secrets, you mean with the 112 Methods of Meditation? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, well, there you go. You've got your, your blueprint there, right there. He said, I remember, because actually that was the first whole total English series that he gave, which was the first book which actually I edited, which I'm very was very happy to do. Um, and he said, there is, out of these 112 methods of meditation, there is a method for every single person, past, present, and future. And all you have to do is find it. And I think that's why it's so strong. I mean, it's a very important series. I you know, I was present for the very first series when he was still in, in Mumbai. And actually, 
um, when I when he sent me back to London to open the centre, I only had that series on tape. It was the only one that I had. So it was very important for me and it turned many, 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 many people on. <laughs> Incredible. That book is massive. And I've heard people actually say that yeah. they, they've had their self-realization enlightenment moment in the middle of that book like yes and they're yes. just like there's no reason to read anymore <laughs> <laughs> no because you, you know it, it's, it's at that point or you he used to say it's that aha moment it's at that point ah i got it i understand it doesn't mean that you've got all the way but you know you've got that very strong sense of i know where i'm going and that's um, a very, very valuable thing to get. Osho didn't leave his room that much, it seems, when he was no. in Puna 1, Puna 2, and Oregon. What, what was he doing in his room? I, I've heard he likes to go into the bathtub, but... <laughs> yes, that's my thing. Um, see, the bath, bath, he used to have his bath in the morning. It, when Puna won, um, ranch, probably still in the morning because in the ranch, uh, oh, I don't know. He, he did read the paper. Um, he read the daily newspaper until the very, very end. He had quite a selection of Indian newspapers in India. He got them in, in on the ranch. He had the TV on the ranch. He didn't have a TV, as far as I remember, in um, Puna 2 or Puna, Puna 1. But he did have a TV on the ranch. Um, he was reading. Um, still, even, you know, not as much. In, in Puna 1, he was a ferocious reader. He would kind of go through 10 books a day, you know, he's the mm. despair of the librarians. Not as much, you know, but um, he did read, but basically he just sat silently. And that's what he was about. You know? He didn't need to do anything. And as I said, there was always the business session in the afternoons after the nap. And that was regular Puna 1 Ranch and Puna 2, where he did what we called ashram business or commune business, you know. And for the discourses, when he was still doing the question and answer ones, that's when he would be given people's questions and he would choose which ones he wanted to answer. That is all done in the afternoon. But still, still, it would only be his secretary, which would have been either Lakshmi or Sheila or Anando and Nirvana there with him. There would not be other people. Only very, very occasionally did he ask somebody to come in to talk to them. Yeah. It seems that he just liked to kind of be alone, just... Didn't want to, didn't mingle. No point, you know. In fact, I remember very, very early on, it was still in early Mumbai, 
and some Indians thought it might be nice to have a party for him. <laughs> so they arranged this party, you know. I was there and I looked at him and I just felt that he simply couldn't connect with us at all, you know. And, and this was immaterial to him. And I remember just going and sitting next to him, not saying a word, but just sitting next to him to sort of give him some support, if you like, or protection. There's no point in, in socializing, you know. He had his work to do. And that was to pull us out of our baggage and conditioning onto vaster and bigger and better things. He definitely was determined. I mean, even the stories before his enlightenment, he was determined at like seven, eight years old. He was just ferociously um, trying to find the quote-unquote answers. Inquiring all the time, yes. I mean, just a brilliant mind, which you don't associate with an enlightened person because you're supposed to be out of your mind. But I mean, he had such a brilliant mind. How much freedom did the secretaries have? Because they essentially, my understanding is they were, you know, they were the, the general manager, so to speak, of everything. Because he was in the room. He didn't mingle, you know. And we saw in Wild Wild Country that Sheila just, I guess you can say went overboard. How much freedom was there? And was Osho really paying attention to everything they did? Because could, couldn't they come into those business meetings and just omit things and not tell them things? Of course. And she was telling lies all the time. She said, he said, do this, and he said, do that. And in fact, um, I've just... Uh, wrote something, uh, you know, for OSHA News, uh, our sort of online magazine and thing, and I didn't think anything of it, but um, um, the guy who runs the Sanyas Wiki, Sugit, he said, wow, he said, this is one of the very rare occasions where we see OSHA saying something should happen and Sheila deliberately going against that and deliberately not doing what he said. Um, so actually, Kevin, the ranch was a little bit of a different story to Puna 1 and Puna 2. In Puna 1, it was always Lakshmi. And Lakshmi was like 100% devoted to him. And I don't think she would ever have dreamed <clears throat> of not doing what he wanted, you know. And she was very tuned into him too. And she was never going to um, do something or sabotage what he was wanted or something. Whenever there were questions, she would take it into him. And he would say, no, you should do this or you should do that. And she was very good uh, about that. And in Puna 2, it was Ananda. Um, that I have a bit more of a question about, but I think she was also very, very clear that whatever he said goes, you know, and not to interfere with her own interpretation or something. Sheila was a completely different kettle of fish, and um, she just went out on a limb and sort of 
basically she had no real understanding of Osho at all. Yeah, and, she, and she's she's on record saying that she, you know she wasn't into the meditation and stuff. So yeah, I mean she just had no understanding of him. She wanted to possess him. You know, she wanted the glory of being his number, his right-hand person. You know, she wanted that sort of prestige and power. She was after power and prestige, and he was her way to get it. And so it was bound to go wrong. Yeah, it seems that she felt that he was incompetent and unable to make the big decisions. And so she felt to take it upon herself to do things. (laughs) God, she is just an imbecile, an evil imbecile. Do you think in, in at the ranch in Oregon, do you think one of the reasons things didn't end well, because of all the controversy, it attracted more people to him in the long run, even though at the time it probably seemed really bad? Yes, but you have to remember that both he and Nirvana died directly as a result of what happened at Rajneeshpuram. And I don't think that he planned to die as quickly as he did um, because he had said quite a few things of, you know, I'm not going to leave you. Don't worry. I'm not going to leave you, you know. And um, I personally felt that he died before his time. And so I, I can't say that the ranch was okay. And a lot of people were quite damaged by that, um, had quite a hard time. And whereas some were fine, others weren't. And um, I don't think it was, you know, the, you, you are saying, which a lot of people are saying, and which I would say hesitate a little bit about, that everything that happened was okay with him. No, where his work was concerned, man, he was dead, clear, straight. It should happen this way, right? And he needed people who would honor that and understand that and do it. You know, for other little things, you know, what he was wearing or something that didn't matter at all, you know. But where his work was concerned, and Sheila neither understood nor was she interested in in doing that. She had a different agenda, which was power. Hmm. Do you think that him going silent was a contribution to it taking a left turn? You know what? I think you have to go right back. My understanding was he had no intention whatsoever of staying in the United States for any length of time. He wanted to go to the Himalayas and he wanted Lakshmi and his other um, more wealthy Indian sannyasins to find him a place in the Himalayas. I am almost 100% sure. And because I remember, and remember, I, I don't, I can't sort of quote or something because I lived in the house. I was picking things up, you know, somebody would say this to something else. or Nirvana would raise her eyes to heaven sort of just without even saying any words, you know, and we were getting pretty ill 
by the by the by 1980, after being in India for 10 years, you know, it had taken a good, quite a toll on his body. And I remember one particular occasion where one woman, woman was quite ill and he said, go back to your home country and get healthy and then come back. And she said, I can't do that. I will never leave you, you know. And I think that sort of set him on another track because for me, the idea was, and it was very strong, go back to your home country and get healthy and then come back. That's what he said when he was going to America, mm. right? And then Sheila did not ask him about the purchase of the ranch. Mm. She presented to him as an accomplished fact. She bought it without asking him. So there he was. For me, he was in quite a quandary that he was in America. The Indian sannyasins had not got a place for him in India. And Sheila had got this place, a ranch in the west of America. Just, it was inconceivable. Um, but what would he do if he wanted to carry on his work? He didn't want to go back to Pune because Pune had become much too small. You know, it was very crowded where we were, mm. Oregon Park. And there were a lot of problems because of that. So my feeling was, is that he basically had no option. The option that he wanted wasn't presented to him. So he had to go with the ranch. And... Another thing I have said, I don't know if I said it in my book. Yes, I did. You know, like right from the beginning, in the very early days, he called Lakshmi up to his house and I drove her up there. So I'm talking from very firsthand experience. And she went and she came out and she was shaking. And I said, you know, after a while, I said, what happened? And she said, he told me to go back to India immediately and find him a place because he doesn't want to be here. So my feeling that those three, those years of silence was he was just, he was marking time and he wasn't going to really interfere or, or give any real guidance of what was happening um, because I don't think he saw that this was what he, his work really was about. You know, he said it a few times, I don't want you building houses or building roads. You know, I want you to be meditating. So all those sannyasins are, are, you know, sannyasins are super positive and they've learned a lot from him. So we try to turn it into something of a real learning experience. And it was, it was a massive learning experience. You just created a city. And, you know, I mean, phenomenal what we did. That's, mean, it's not even phenomenal. comprehensible. It's like, it's no. like, what? What do you mean you created yeah. a city from scratch? Yeah. Yeah, from nothing, you know. So so it was, it ended up, you know, a massive learning experience, but there was a bit of, there was a downside. I don't think he had a choice. He wouldn't have gone for teaching lessons in that particular way. By coming to America and creating a city, having disciples wearing the same color robes, especially at that time, there's no way 
there's no way that the establishment wouldn't look at that. The American government, the Christian government wouldn't look at that and be like, okay, there's something funky going on over there. Yes. Our radar is up. Yes. And then you listen to him and every now and again, he's poking fun at the Pope or he basically saying, Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan. He's saying religions need to be dissolved. This is threatening to the establishment. Big time. Mm -hmm. At a high, high level. Mm -hmm. I'm reminded of someone like Malcolm X who did similar. Mm -hmm. He was killed. Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King was killed. Gandhi was killed. JFK was killed. So here's this guy creating a city, talking about religion needs to go bye-bye. <laughs> and he's got 100 Rolls Royces. What? I mean, of course the, the feds are going to be on alert. And when everything started to get hairy, we'll say, I would think the establishment was like, okay, this is our chance. This is our chance right now to infiltrate. And they got him into a jail. Yeah. You know, on, on immigration law, right? Yeah. It was, on, it was on immigration law. They got him into a jail. Yes. yes. And from what Osho says, they passed him through like six different prison, little prison yes. cells. So we lost track of him, which is illegal. Yeah. And... He claims that they put thallium in his food. Mm. Or something, yeah. And thallium is untraceable. Yes. And it takes a long time to deteriorate the body. It's not like a 10-minute thing. So, in a sense, if this is all true, they killed him too. Yeah. Where's that documentary? Exactly. Well, you have to say it. <laughs> You've got your audience. You can reach a lot of people. You can say it. Yeah. And he lived, what, five years more after Oregon? Just not even five, four, four years. And the last year he was so weak. They were months when he couldn't even come out and talk to us or be with us and then then he even stopped talking and he would just come and sit with us you know um because he was too weak yeah yeah i'm reminded of two other spiritual teachers who well, one of them just passed away last year Ram Das mm. and Thich Nhat Hanh oh yes who is he's still alive just and so, they're they're both the same age as Osho yes and so I've thought about that like you know if Osho made it he'd be about 88 years old right now Yes, I think he's 12 years older than me. I'm 76. So, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And I think he could, he, I think his plan was to go on for much longer than he did. You know? Well, he died very young. When you think about it, 59? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, and everyone says this, he looked a lot older than he was. Mm. Mm. Why do you think that is? Because of his illnesses? Because he was enlightened and had this massive consciousness expansion at only 21? No, I think it was basically he was working so hard on, you know, a million different levels, most of which we can't even fathom, you know, because he wasn't only concerned with his his disciples or his sannyasins, you know, and over and over again, he talked about the state of the earth and how we were damaging it by our overpopulation and how in Pune 1, he suggested to us, he didn't force us, he did suggest us that we were sterilized because there were too many people on the planet. And he got quite hammered for that, you know. But already he was concerned, you know. We're heading in the wrong direction. And he was doing his level best to make people as aware as possible. Yeah. And, and I, you know, so I think we, we can't even fathom what levels he was working on and um, trying to sort of help consciousness on the planet and you know there are people who, who um, I think have picked up a message they may not even like him or anything or know of him even you know like for example David Attenborough we've got some great people who are talking and talking and talking but I think Osho is doing it on another level and I think it really took a toll on his body many people have said he's appeared to them just like he appeared to you in their dream <laughs> Yes, I think so. <laughs> and maybe he was working double, like you said, like he was working on other levels. Oh, that's what he said, you know. He said, now I can, without the body, I can be all over the place. So, no, but but um, I think the, the, the last part of the ranch really did take it out of him. His physical body really um, took a massive toll and... Um, and he never recovered. He never recovered that that amazing energy that he had. It was still there, believe me, it was still there. But um, because as I say, and I think it is really important to know, he wasn't just talking to his disciples. He was trying to cover the full spectrum of human conditioning on the planet, you know, and and try to to change the energy of a lot of destruction and selfishness and greed, which we're seeing all the time now. And hopefully people will wake up a bit. He was talking to me 30 years <laughs> later. Yes, yes. And and many others just like me. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's Facebook groups out there, Osho Facebook groups, and there's just there's thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people yeah. that definitely weren't around in the 80s, 70s and 80s. Well, there's a couple that I support who are doing the Osho podcast. Mm -hmm. Have you seen that? Oh, yeah. The Love Osho podcast? Yes. Swaram and Chetna. Mm -hmm. And they, I mean, neither of them met Osho. 
I met Chetna 12 years, 12, 14 years ago in England, you know, and we've become very, very good friends. And I'm a bit of a sort of dictionary for them. You know, what happened so-and-so? What was going on so-and-so? Chetna and Saram said, all you people are dying off so quickly. We just want to get your words before you die. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, go for it while we're still alive. (laughs) And, you know, but, you know, the fact that, that how amazing they've understood, you know, and your understanding, Kevin, I mean, I can just know from the way you're speaking is your understanding is very deep and this is too. And yet you never met Osho in the body. I think it's like a miracle. <laughs> All right, Vina, it's, it's really been a pleasure. And I have another interview in 15 minutes. <laughs> Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, off you go. <laughs> so my energy is going to be burnt up in a, f- yes. in a few hours. So, Yeah. Okay. Well, it was great speaking to you. I was, I was a bit nervous, but you um, were very good the way you spoke. And, and I can just sense that your love and understanding of Osho is 100% genuine. And then that makes it very easy for me to talk to. Um, so I don't have to explain. You've already understood. So. <laughs> That's good. My pleasure. Vina, thank you for your time. Yeah, this has been the longest I've ever had a guest on. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> and if you've been paying attention to this podcast from the beginning, I'm sure you can piece together why. I suggest that if you enjoyed this episode, you go back to episode number 42 and listen to Preem Fishran. And you can sort of piece some things together. Well, that's it for today. If you're looking for my work, of course, go to drreese.com. That's doctor spelled out. And I'll talk to you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to Inner Peace with Dr. Reese. If this episode opened your heart, feel free to share on social media and tell your loved ones. Also, be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, may peace be with you.